Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians. Our, our text today is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going through a series of sermons on the benefits of salvation in Christ, which will follow the outline of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What benefits do we receive in this life? What benefits do we receive at death? And what benefits do we receive at the resurrection? Now, the last two weeks, we've considered the first of the benefits we receive in this life namely justification and adoption. In justification, God declares us to be righteous. That means our sins are forgiven, never to be counted against us. Our, our debt is canceled, paid in full by Jesus, so that in Him there is now no condemnation that we need to fear. But more than this, Jesus' perfect obedience has even been credited to our account. That's justification. In Christ, we have fully perfectly fulfilled the law. In adoption, God claims us as His own children with the promise that we don't have to establish our own righteousness. We are beloved because of who we are as children of God in Christ. And God promises He will do good to His children both today and tomorrow. This morning we're considering a third benefit God gives us in this life. Sanctification. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray and ask God for His blessing upon our study this morning. Would you pray with me? Our prayer for illumination comes from an unknown Christian writing around 460 A.D. O God, who has taught us to keep all your heavenly commandments by loving you and our neighbor, Grant us the spirit of peace and grace, that we may be both devoted to you with our whole heart and united to each other with a pure will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, come up and join me. All right, guys, this morning we are talking about sanctification. Can you say sanctification? Excellent. Uh, sanctification is 
a big word about a simple idea. It, it's talking about the way that we, over time, look more and more like Jesus. But what does it mean to look like Jesus? What, what was he like? Eleanor. Perfect. Okay, that's good. You were going to say perfect too? Yeah. What, was Jesus kind? Yeah. Was he gentle with people? Yeah. Uh, was he true? Yeah. He spoke the truth all the time. Yeah. Isaac. Good. Good. Yeah. So many things. Yeah. So many good qualities that we could say. Jesus was holy. He was perfect. He didn't sin. And, and so as you and I trust in Jesus and God brings us into his family, we want to look more and more like Jesus, our older brother. We want to look more and more like God, our Father. And that means we now struggle against selfishness, because Jesus wasn't selfish. We struggle against selfishness that shows itself in anger or demanding what we want. It means we try to do the good things that God gives us to do, like forgiving people who hurt us and even showing kindness to them. In other words, we are trying to clean up our lives so that they look like Jesus's life, which is the most beautiful of all. And for a long time, I imagined that cleaning up my life was like, uh, it was something that I had to do alone. I, I kind of imagined it being like I was in a room with Jesus. And, and the fact that he even wanted to be in the room with me was amazing. But I imagine that I was on one side of the room, and Jesus was on the other side of the room, and in between us was this huge pile of gross, nasty stuff, which was really my sin. It's all the ways that I'm not like Jesus. And all that smelly stuff was in between us. It's all my selfishness. It's everything that's wrong with me. And I imagine that it was my job to clean up all that stuff if Jesus and I were really going to be close to each other. Uh, if I was going to be clean like him, then I was going to have to get rid of that smelly stuff. Only it wasn't sealed up nicely in one trash bag. It was more like a mountain of rotten garbage. And do you know how I felt when I imagined that picture in my mind? Yeah, I felt terrible because, you know what? I am terrible at cleaning up my life. I, 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 I'm terrible at it. But God's word has helped me understand that I'd had the picture all wrong. Because in what we just read from Ephesians, God is telling us even more good news. Because he's saying that becoming like Jesus is not something that we do on our own. It's like you really are in a room with Jesus. Ben, come here. It's like you really are in a Jesus. And, and there really is a big, smelly pile of your sin in the room. It's real, and it's not good. But Jesus is not on the other side of that pile of stuff waiting for you to clean yourself up. No, he is beside you, and he's got his arm around you. And he says, you know, you really are a bit of a mess. But we're going to do this together. I love you, and I'm with you to clean it up.
So let's do it. You see, the gospel tells us that God does more than offer us just the forgiveness of our sins. That's a beautiful truth, but he offers more than that. Part of his gift to us is taking people like us and making us look more and more like Jesus. Yeah, we have some work to do, but we aren't working alone. Our great God and Savior is already at work, and we can trust him to do what we could never do by ourselves. And that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks guys. If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we're, we're doing this as part of that series that Sam mentioned, this series on the benefits of our salvation. Uh, and you'll remember that to this point we've considered the, the two things that he reminded us of uh, in the introduction, uh, our justification and our adoption. These are things that God has done for us in Christ. And this morning, uh, we begin to look at something that God is doing in us, in Christ. And that is our sanctification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification as a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and enabled more and more to die unto our sin and to live unto righteousness. In other words, sanctification is the process by which God transforms us, by which he he makes us new, he he gives us new hearts and new minds, and, and in the process transforms our lives so that we are more and more like Christ in true righteousness and holiness. This is the work that God is doing in us through Christ. Now, if you are anything like me, hearing about this this idea of sanctification is both exhilarating and disconcerting at the same time. It is, it's exhilarating because this is something that I long for. I I hunger and thirst to to be more like Christ. I I have come to know firsthand from many repeated experiences that sin does not lead to life, but to death. I've come to, to learn that my, my sin leads me into trouble, that it, that it causes pain, and I, I long to be righteous. I long to be conformed to the pattern uh, that, that God himself set forth for my flourishing. I know my sin, and it causes me to groan, and so the idea that I am being sanctified is exhilarating. But it is also disconcerting. And it's disconcerting for the same reason. It's disconcerting because I know my sin. When I consider my own holiness, or lack thereof, I'm forced to wonder why I am not being sanctified more quickly than I am. And so it is exhilarating, but troubling. And I suspect that that's true for many of you here this morning. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, but at the same time are troubled by the slowness of your progress. So hopefully this morning we can hear that call to holiness in the scriptures. We can feel the challenge of it, but at the same time 
we can quiet the fears that it raises in our hearts. So let's, let's begin just with the call. The call to holiness. Two weeks ago I said that we are justified because of what God has done in us, in, or has done for us in Christ. We are, we are justified not because of anything that we have done or even anything that God has done in us, but we are justified because we have been united to Christ in His righteousness. His righteousness has been counted as ours, and therefore in Him we are declared righteous in the sight of God. And that is the, the foundation of the gospel. As I said, if we, if we get this wrong, we get the gospel wrong. If we get justification wrong... We, we get off the path in such a way that we will, we will miss all the rest of the, the beauty and the benefits of God's salvation. We have to understand that we are justified apart from works, apart from anything that we do. However, this does not mean that there is nothing for us to do. There were those in Paul's day who, who thought that this was the gospel that he was Preaching. We see this in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Addressing his opponents, uh, Paul, uh, uh, or um, addressing the objections of his opponents, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's what some people thought Paul was teaching. Paul, Paul, they heard Paul say that we're no longer under law, and they, they thought that he was giving people a license to sin. But Paul refutes this claim in the strongest possible terms. He, he, he teaches that, that we are not to sin uh, because we are under grace, but rather grace has set us free to obey for the first time. And it was, wasn't only Paul's opponents who misunderstood and misrepresented his gospel. Uh, Some of his disciples, some of those whom he led to faith in Christ would make the same mistake. We see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, The Corinthians were sinning. They were, uh, there was one in their church who was caught in gross sexual immorality, a kind of immorality that Paul says wasn't even tolerated amongst the Gentiles. And yet, Paul says, the Corinthians were proud. They were arrogant of this. Now why would anyone be proud of their sin? Why would anyone be be arrogant uh, when caught in in such immorality? It would seem that they thought that their toleration of this gross sin showed how much they believed in grace. They were able to, to tolerate such sin because they really got it. They really believed in grace. But Paul shows them, goes on to show them how this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. That we are saved apart from works, as as Paul and all of the scriptures clearly teach, does not mean that we are not supposed to do good works. On the contrary, as we see here in this text, Paul says in verse 10 that, that while we are saved apart from good works, good works are the goal of our salvation. We have been formed by God, the, the craftsman, to do good works, to do those good works that he himself has prepared for us to do. <coughs> yes, we are saved by grace apart from works, but we are saved unto the good works that God has called us to. 
And because of this, we know that each and every one of us is called to be holy. We are, we are called to, to conform to the image of, of God's own holiness. This is, this is not a call for a select few. This is not a, a call for a few who are really serious about their faith, who are really serious about uh, following Jesus. This is not a call for a few radical disciples, but rather this is the call that God makes upon everyone who comes to him to to eat and to drink and to be satisfied. This is the call upon everyone who believes in the Son and rests upon him for their own salvation. Every one of us is called to be holy. Paul couldn't have been any more clear about this than he is in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says, this is God's will for your life. Wouldn't you like to know, what is God's will for your life? Well, Paul tells you, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. This is God's will, that you be holy, <coughs> excuse me, even as he is holy. So what does that mean? What is this call to holiness? What does it mean to be holy as, as he is holy? When we think of God's holiness, we, we think of his otherness, we think of his, his separateness. But in, in moral terms, to say that he is holy is to say that he is absolutely separate from all corruption. He is absolutely separate from all pollution. He is in no way defiled. He is in no way impure. He he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. All that he does is good. All that he does is true. All that he does is righteous. (coughs) Without stain. He is unadulterated goodness. And that is the standard to which we are called. That is the standard that we are called to to conform to. We are to be holy as God is holy. We we are to fight against sin in every part, even in the the smallest degree. This is the call that was first heard in the Old Testament in, in Leviticus chapter 19. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now you might think, well, that's the Old Testament. (laughs) That's when the people were under law. But this command is repeated in the New Testament. This command is is repeated in the age of grace. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there it is. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. And what will setting your hope fully on that grace mean? Will it lead to license? Will it lead to lackness? Will Will it lead to indulgence of your sin? No, not at all. But he says, set your hope fully on the, on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, so that as obedient children you may not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but rather that you may be holy as he who called you is holy. Just as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this is the call of God upon your life. This is God's will for you, that you be sanctified, that you be made more and more holy, that you be (coughs) transformed after the image of Christ. And when you put that into specific terms, what you begin to see is that 
that Jesus was the embodiment of the law. He was the word incarnate. He was the, he was the embodiment of the fulfillment of all of God's laws. And so what we are being called to here is we are being called back to the law from which we have just been set free in our adoption. <coughs> Excuse me. We said last Sunday that, that before we were slaves under the law, forced to relate to God through the law, forced to establish our own righteousness by the law. And in such a context, the law was our enemy. It was a harsh taskmaster. It was, it was one from whom we longed to be set free. But now, having been set free from the law uh, as, a, as a master, that same law now becomes our friend. It becomes a, a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. It becomes the, uh, the, the light that, that shows us how to walk in the way that God would have us to go. Not that we can earn his blessing, but that we might enter fully into the joys of our salvation. The law that used to condemn us now leads us into life because we are no longer under it, but are now in Christ. In Christ, it is no longer our master. In Christ, we no longer have to fulfill it in order to Excuse me. No longer have to fulfill it in order to establish our own righteousness, but now we fulfill it as the law of God's perfect freedom. This is what we see clearly in a, in a text like John, 1 John chapter 3. You may be familiar with this text. I referred to it last week. It's a, it's, it's a text that many of us have, have struggled with. Uh, 1, John begins, the, uh, 1 John 3 begins with, with the John marveling at the, the love that been, has been lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. <coughs> but then he says that the children do, uh, do not and, and cannot sin. And this is where this, this comforting text turns to, to become troublesome. Because we, we wonder, okay, well, if that's the standard, then, then maybe I'm not a child. If that's the standard, then maybe I'm excluded. I, I, was, I was encouraged by this idea that, that God's love has been lavished on me, that I should be called a child. But if the standard for a child is that we do not and, and cannot sin, how does that apply to me? Some who have, have tried to... Uh, you know, wrestle with this text, have, have recognized that, you know, this, this cannot mean, this cannot mean what at least it sounds like it means to us uh, in, in English. It, it, it cannot mean that a child of God never sins. We, we actually know this from the text itself. The text itself, John himself tells us in the context of, of, of these verses that those who are children of God are not yet what they will one day be. They, they will one day be conformed perfectly to the image of Christ, but that is not yet. So, so Paul is telling, or, or Peter is telling us, even in the context here, that those who are children of God are actively purifying themselves now. That suggests that there's something that they need to purify themselves from. And so, so we know, not just from our own experience, but we know from the text itself that this cannot mean that the children of God never sin. What does it mean then? Well, well, some have tried to soften the force of what John is saying here by, by pointing out that he uses a present tense verb. Uh, and this suggests that, that John is saying that it's, it's not that children of God never sin, it's that they don't, they don't sin habitually. They don't make a, a habit of sinning. 
Yes, they, they sin sometimes, but it's, but it's not the habit by which they're defined. I suspect some of you have, have heard this before. But I don't know about you, but, but that's not very comforting. <laughs> that's not very comforting to me, at least, because I'm in the habit of sinning. I, I don't sin sometimes. I sin daily. I, I struggle against the, the passions in my flesh every day. And so to, to, to suggest that, that the standard is not perfection, but it's just that you don't make a habit of sinning, doesn't really soften the, the force of the text. What then does John mean? What is he getting at? Well, you've, you've probably heard me say it before, but, but I, I think this, is, this text is actually easier to understand than, than we sometimes make it. Let me give you a, an illustration. Maybe you've seen the movie A League of Their Own. Uh, this is a, a movie about the, the women's baseball league that was started during World War II. And there's a very famous scene in that movie where the, the manager, played by Tom Hanks, says to one of his players, who is crying because they uh, didn't hit the cutoff man, are you crying? This is the question. Are, are you crying? But then he makes a statement. He says, there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. It sounds similar to what, what John says. Children of God don't sin. Baseball players don't cry. But what does he mean when he says that? Clearly, he doesn't mean that baseball players never cry because he's talking to a baseball player who's crying. And so what does he mean? He means that it's not becoming for a baseball player to cry. It's, it's inappropriate to, to who they are. It's contrary to their position. And that's exactly the, the way that John is using this language. There's, children of God don't sin. It's not that they never sin. It's not even that they do not sin habitually. But rather, it is not, in, it is not becoming of who they are. Children of God have been made children that they might emulate their father, that they might walk in the footsteps of their older brother. This is the call to holiness. And it's where we need to start this morning. You need to understand that if you are a child of God, if you have been justified in Christ, then you are called to holiness. You are called to a holiness defined by God's law. You are called to law-keeping. You are, you are called to fulfill the law, not as a way of establishing your own righteousness, but as a way of entering fully into the joy of the salvation that is yours in Christ. And so the first thing that we see here about sanctification is that, is that sanctification presumes a call to holiness, a call that is upon each and every one of us who has received and rested in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. The question then is, how do we do this? <laughs> how, how do we actually begin to grow in holiness? We've not been saved from keeping the law, but for keeping the law. But, but how? We, we couldn't do it before. Why can we do it now? Who does this work of sanctification? Well, as Sam was saying to the kids, some people believe that sanctification is what we do for God. He's, he's justified us. He's, he's brought us into the room. But now we need to clean up the mess in order to really have a, a relationship with him. We clean up the mess in order to, to show our gratitude for what he's done for us. He's done so much for us. We can do this small thing of living a holy life for him. You, you've heard that way of speaking. But while this way of 
speaking is common. It is, it is simply not what the scriptures teach. Notice again what the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It is a work that God is doing by his grace in the life of the one whom he has saved. And it's what we need to understand as we, as we hear this call to holiness. <coughs> we have to understand that holiness is, God, is part of God's gift. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he has prepared for us to do. It is God who has made us alive together with Christ, and it is God who is now at work in us, conforming us more and more to his image. We see the same thing in, in Titus chapter 2. There Paul says, it is God's grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. God's grace is training you. God's grace is at work in you. God is in the business of, of making you new. He's, he's training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. The same thing we see in Galatians chapter 5. You're familiar with, with Paul's description of the, the fruit of the Spirit, but understand what that implies. This is the fruit of that the Spirit brings forth in you. This is the fruit that, that God works. This is the, the fruit that God gives to those whom he has called to himself. And this is why we see Paul praying the way he does throughout his letters. Just, just think of the way he prays in, Galatians, or in Philippians chapter 1. He prays that their love might abound more and more. Remember, love is the fulfillment of the law. And he's praying that their love might abound more and more. How are the Philippians going to grow in love? How are the Philippians going to learn to, to love their neighbor and, and their enemies? How are they going to become people marked by the love of God? As God works in them. So Paul prays for them that God would make their love abound more and more. So clearly we, we see throughout the scriptures that, that sanctification is something that God does in us. And that is huge. It has, it has huge implications. First, it, it means that sanctification is, in one sense, impossible. That is, it, it can't be accomplished in our own strength. It is impossible for us. It is beyond our ability. If you seek to clean up your mess in order to get closer to God, you have put yourself back under the law and you have cut yourself off from grace. And you will live under his curse because you can't do it. Cursed is everyone who, who, abide, who relies upon works of the law for no one can abide by all things written in the book of the law. We cannot make ourselves holy. We may be able to, to modify our behavior to a certain extent. Some of you are more disciplined than others. Some of you are better at this than, uh, than others. But, but all of us fall short. None of us can change our hearts any more than a leopard can change his spots. Only God can speak light out of darkness. Only God can give life to the dead. And only God can make sinners holy. We have to begin our, our pursuit of holiness, understanding that sanctification is God's work. And that means that, that sanctification is impossible for us. But of course, it also means that sanctification is possible because all things are possible for God. 
God is the God of the impossible. He is the God who does what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is why uh, the, the authors of the New Testament continuously uh, display an absolute confidence that we will be conformed to the image of the, the glory of Christ. We will be presented holy and blameless to him on that day. Second Peter 1 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All things necessary for sanctification, all things necessary for life and godliness have been given to us. By his precious promises, we have been granted everything necessary that we might be conformed to the divine nature, that we might become like God. Paul says the same thing in, in Galatians 5, right before his description of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The power of the Spirit is sufficient to train you to renounce the desires of the flesh and to walk in uprightness. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is what God has done in us through Christ. And so we see, we begin this, this uh, question of, of how do we pursue holiness. We begin with the understanding that, that holiness is God's work. It is what God is doing in us. But here again, we must be careful, because while sanctification is God's work, while it is something that God does, it is also something that we are called to do. Yes, it is, it is God's work. We heard it in all of those texts. But did you notice that in every single one of those texts, there was also the assumption that we would be working too. So sanctification is God's work, but it is, but it is our work. And that, that sounds mysterious, that sounds confusing, but again, it's, it's really very common. Just think about it. Think about how you receive your daily bread. Jesus taught you to pray for your daily bread, and I trust that you do. You, you pray that God would, would supply you with the provision that you need for today and, and for tomorrow and for the coming weeks. We, we pray that God would give us what we need to, to live life. But how does that daily bread come to us? Well, someone planted the seed and, and someone cultivated it and someone harvested it and someone processed it and someone baked it and someone brought it to the store and then you did work of your own so that you could have the, the, the resources to purchase what you need to, to feed yourself and your, your family. Your work was involved and yet God gave it to you. God gave the growth God provided you with the food, even though he used your efforts as a means to accomplishing his purposes. And this is a beautiful picture of how God makes his children holy. God is at work, and he's often at work through the very efforts that he is strengthening in you. It's something like the relationship we have to the power company, is it not? The, the, the power company makes the power. The, the power company gets the power to the house. But, 
But you still have to plug in the device. You still have to flip the switch. You still have to use the power that has been provided. And that's the relationship that we see spelled out in a text like Philippians chapter 2. Again, it's a, it's a text that you are very familiar with. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, there it is, the call to sanctification, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. So obeying, obeying the law is working out your salvation. It's, it's putting your, your salvation into practice. And he says, work out your salvation. It's a, it's a command. This is something you must do. Work out your salvation. But work out your salvation knowing that it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So God is working. He's working to make you holy. And because he is working to make you holy, you must work in the pursuit of holiness. <coughs> This is the logic behind all of the commands in the New Testament. We are told to put to death what is earthly in us. We are, we are told to, to put off the old man. We are told to renounce our sinful passions all because God is already at work in us to accomplish these good ends. And so we pursue them knowing not that, that we can accomplish them in ourselves, but knowing that he will accomplish them in us by his Grace, as he gives the growth to the efforts that we have put in to cultivate holiness. And so this is the call. This is the call of sanctification. Pursue holiness in humble reliance upon his immeasurable grace. And this is serious business. Deadly serious, in fact. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, we hear that and, and we immediately begin to, to, uh, to remind ourselves, well, of course, we're not, we're not supposed to literally maim ourselves. And that is true. But hear the seriousness of Jesus' call. We are to, to take seriously the effort to put sin out of our lives. And this is a serious endeavor that too many Christians neglect. And that's not true just of our generation. That, is, that has always been true. William Law, writing in the 1700s, said that the number one reason that, that Christians were so little different from the world, just think about that. He's, he's writing in the 1700s. And, and he's saying the same kind of things we hear today. Oh, Christians are too much like the world. But why are Christians too much like the world? He suggests that too, Christians are too much like the world because they never intended not to be. Because they never actually resolved to walk in humble reliance upon grace and obedience to his law. Most Christians aren't as holy as they could be because they simply aren't seeking to be as holy as they could be. And so this is the challenge that, that we are presented with this morning. The challenge to say, will we go to war with our sin? Will we seek to cut it out of our lives and, and put it to death? Will we seek to put off the old man and put on the new? This is what we are being called to. But understand, we are not being called to this so that we can get to Jesus or so that we can have a relationship with Jesus. But rather, this is what Jesus is calling us to 
Because he knows that this is the salvation that we have been given. That holiness that we are being called to, it is part of his gift. And he is with us in the endeavor to put sin to death. If you look at your own life this morning and you see that maybe you're not as serious about fighting sin as you could be. Maybe you're not as serious about pursuing holiness as you you could be. I, I want you to feel the conviction of that. It is not okay to be okay with your sin. We are called to holiness. We are called to do serious battle with our sin. But understand this, that if you struggle to go to war with your sin, there is grace here too. Think about it again. Think about that passage in Philippians 2. This is what we need to hear. This is what we need to see. It says that God is at work in us. And because he is at work in us, we can work out our salvation. But understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that God is at work in us not only to do that which we've been called to do, but even to will it. And so if your desire for holiness is small, if your hunger has has withered, then even here there is grace. Even here you can call out to God, even as we did at the beginning of this service, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, my my desire for holiness is small, but I know that you can grow. It's what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, or for the Philippians. God caused their love to abound more and more. It's what you can pray for yourself. It's what you can pray for your family. It's what you can pray for, for one another. God, cause our love to abound. Give us a a desire for holiness, even according to your promise. For it was God himself who said to his people in the Old Testament through the prophet Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from you the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. The hunger and thirst for righteousness that leads us to to endeavor after new obedience is itself a gift. And so if you do not feel it this morning, ask. Ask. Ask God to revive your your hunger for holiness. Ask him to, to, to work up in you a desire to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Make Psalm 51 your prayer. Because there the psalmist says, create a new heart in me. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And if you will make that your prayer, if you will ask God to give you that hunger and thirst for righteousness, that desire to be holy as he is holy, he will do it. Because even the desire for holiness that leads to the pursuit of holiness is part of the gift that is given to his children in the name of his beloved son, If you ask God to to kindle a desire for holiness, he will work that desire in you. And he will give you the strength to pursue it. And he will cause that pursuit to bear fruit. Because holiness is part of the gift of his salvation. And because he gives us the holiness that he requires, 
That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your, your goodness and your mercy and your grace, Father. We thank you that we do not have to make ourselves holy, but that you are making us holy. And Father God, I pray that you would help us to hear the good news of this and that you would kindle in us a, a true desire to have our lives in every part renewed and conformed to the image of the glory of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.